You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In the words of the late noted philosopher from Minnesota, Prince himself, Dearly beloved, and we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life and COVID and lockouts and snowstorms, all of it. Does it help at least a little that the 2022 Mets coaching staff is starting to take shape and that it's eclectic and electric and packed with experience and wisdom? Not all the spots are officially filled, but soon enough there will be exactly that to talk about. And we'll get more from former Mets manager Terry Collins. We'll be looking at the all-time best Mets third baseman, among other things today. So if the elevator tries to break you down, oh no, let's go, because this is Mets in the Morning. Mets in the morning. Mets in the morning. Oh yeah. Mets in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while Thank you very little. This is Mets in the Morning, keeping you warm through the snow and the Omicron and all the stuff that's out there that's so easy to depress the hell out of us. The Mets are making inroads, getting ready for the 22 season whenever it decides to begin, hopefully on time. The Mets are scheduled to open the season against the Nationals at City Field March 31st. Two Cy Young Award winners in the rotation, ready to have at it, but... Uh, Plenty to talk about, even with all of that still so far away. Josh Lewin with you. Thank you for joining. And before I forget, hit me up, as the kids say. Send me a tweet at Josh Lewin Stuff if you have ideas or feedback about this endeavor. We're coming up on six months of Mets in the Morning, and we continue to tweak and sculpt. But a format that we've settled on for the offseason, I kind of like. We give you some news of the week. We run an interview with someone reasonably interesting. We look at a little Mets history and context. This time it's all about third base, about third base, not treble, or even Tom Treble Horn, longtime big league manager and coach. Speaking of coaches, that is the big news of the week, the poach of a coach. Eric Chavez had been hired by the Yankees on December 21, ended up with a shorter stay in the Bronx and Antonio Brown at MetLife Stadium, just about. Teams generally do let coaches leave for a promotion, and that's what this is, because he had signed with the Yankees as an assistant hitting coach. He can now hop to Queens as the big kahuna. And if you don't remember, Eric Chavez, as a player, was tremendous, mostly for the Moneyball-era A's of the early 2000s when Sandy Alderson had ceded things to Billy Bean. Chavez played 17 seasons with the A's, the Yankees, the Diamondbacks. He hit close to 270, 260 home runs, was a fantastic defensive third baseman, but a silver slugger at that position as well. Since his retirement, he's worked as a TV analyst, a front office executive, as a minor league manager, And the insight here is that he's had a close relationship with Mets GM Billy Epler since last decade. The two got to know each other in the Bronx. Then Epler moved on to become GM of the Angels. He brought Chavez with him as a special assistant. And he also interviewed Chavez for the team's managerial vacancy before the 2018 season, a job that went to Brad Ausmus, who, by the way, will be signing on as the bench coach for Chavez's old team out there in Oakland. In Queens... Eric is going to inherit an offense that underperformed much of last season, 27th in the majors in runs per game. Remember, the Mets dismissed Chili Davis in May, replaced him with Hugh Quattlebaum, but just nominal improvement, if any, following that move. 
So the Yankees get Luis Rojas as their new third base coach. The Mets or the Mets grab Chavez to be their hitting coach. Kind of a delayed release tit for tat. So that hiring, when it becomes official, will move the Mets closer to filling out a staff that will reportedly also include Joey Cora as a third base coach, Wayne Kirby as a first base coach. Cora, the last five years, the Pirates third base coach, Kirby, you might remember, played briefly for the Mets in 98. He was part of Buck's coaching staff in Baltimore. The last couple of years, he was out in San Diego yelling at Manny Machado to run out ground balls. We're going to talk a lot more in detail about both those guys in subsequent podcasts and Eric Chavez. We'll even ask him if it is Chavez now or Chavez. He's vacillated his entire career. But at least for the base coaches, these are both guys that were huge positive influencers in their playing days. Two guys that have done these base coaching jobs on a big stage before. And with Cora, really interesting, a guy that was indirectly responsible for Buck Showalter being let go by the Steinbrenner Yankees of 26, 27 years ago. In that decisive game five of the AL Division Series, Yankees and Mariners, it was Cora that led off the bottom of the ninth with his trademark bunt single. Yes, that's what he laid down. Well, Buck was furious, claiming that Cora had veered out of the base path to avoid Don Mattingly's tag. Yada, yada, yada. Cora scores a tying run ahead of Ken Griffey's iconic series-clinching sprint around the bases on the double by Edgar Martinez. One last note on the coaching front. The Mets are staying within the organization for their top four minor league managers for 2022. Kevin Bowles at AAA, Reed Brignac at AA, Luis Rivera at Brooklyn, Robbie Robinson at St. Lucie. Last piece of business before we get on to part two of our Terry Collins interview. Speaking of St. Lucie, because that's where Terry's hanging out these days. Now, we need to pour one out for a guy named Daniel Joseph Riley, the original Mr. Met. First guy to have worn the costume back in 1964. He just passed away last week, and he was a fascinating guy. Graduated from high school in Queens, went to broadcasting school, served in the Marines in Guam, became a ticket agent for old Eastern Airlines. And after all that, he comes to work in the Mets ticket office. They slapped the costume on him because no one else wanted to do it. He was Mr. Met for about 10 years before he handed it off to someone else, handing over the head. uh, Went on to work in promotions for the old ABA New York Nets. He worked as a bartender and did some other stuff. Married his first wife, Gloria, the afternoon of October 11, 1969. That was, of course, World Series Game 1 against the Orioles, a road game. So his closest friends on the Mets, Ron Swoboda, Tug McGraw, could not attend. He had made those marital arrangements long before the Mets were expected to be in the postseason. So... R.I.P. to Mr. Riley. Uh, Thanks for being the first one to make Mr. Met come to life. Now, to the continuation of our talk that we started with Terry Collins last week. And I honestly thought T.C. was one of the best managers I've ever been around. And that includes Buck Showalter, who I was with for four years when I was a TV guy for the Texas Rangers. To me, the good managers are the ones that help make sure that the grind of the season doesn't get to a player. Research shows that poorer decisions are made by a player about things like, should I swing or not swing here in the dog days of August than in those fresh-baked months of April and May. A good manager finds ways to keep everybody sharp and focused for every month, every week, every day. And for seven years, that's exactly what Terry Collins did for the Mets. Baseball can be a mental beatdown. It is a game of inches played at insane speeds and crazy things can happen. I think the best managers recognize this and diffuse and handle this. 
quick off-topic thought, by the way, kind of a big picture thing now that we're, we're heading down a rabbit hole. Can I just say what a great freaking sport this is? One thing I love about baseball that I never hear discussed, I love how nearly every game has its own unique fingerprint. And what I mean by that is last year, 80% of Major League games ended with an inning-by-inning line score never before seen in history. Even a pedestrian 5-2 to two game. Say the visitors got four in the first and one in the sixth, home team gets two in the eighth. That exact thing had never, ever happened before in Major League history. So the most common inning-by-inning line score, by the way, there is research on this. There's about 300 of these. A one nothing final where the home team scores in the bottom of the ninth. Mets have had four of those bad boys over the years, including one in that magical season of 69 we were just talking about. They won nine games overall that year, one nothing. In fact, nine of their last 80 wins were one nothing, including the, the famous doubleheader sweep in Pittsburgh in September when both runs were driven in by the starting pitchers. I know I'm way down a rabbit hole here, but another bizarre thing out of that 69 season, the only time all year the Mets and their opponents combined for as many as 20 runs was on opening day. The 11-10 loss to the expansion Montreal Expos. Rusty Staub, two hits, three walks for Montreal as their cleanup man. Maury Wills was a leadoff man in Expos shortstop. Struck out looking against Seaver in the first ever Expos at bat. Montreal would go on to win anyway against Seaver 11-10. And one week later, the Expos would get a no-hitter from their 24-year-old righty, Bill Stoneman. Yeah, the Expos banked a no-hitter nine games into their existence. For the Mets, it took until game 8,020. Anyway, let's pick things back up with the man who managed that Mets no-hitter, controversially, as Johan Santana famously stayed out there for 134 pitches. But we're talking here with Terry Collins about his days coming of age as a manager, riding those buses in the minors. And he began with a story from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Here's Terry Collins. Uh, well, I... The, my first year, I went there from Double A in June. Del, Del Crandall got the job in Seattle, and they moved me from Double A AA to trip to Albuquerque. We got in the playoffs, got beat in the finals, and then three years later, we won the championship okay. um, in Albuquerque. And then the next year, we got in the playoffs again. But on September first, when the play, when rosters expanded, I lost nine players to the big oh. leagues. So, isn't that always the bitch about? that being a triple-A manager I think is the hardest job there is because you're managing egos of guys on their way down. You've got egos of guys trying to get up for the first time. Right. And then just when you finally circled the wagons and figured it all out, September 1st comes and everybody's gone. And, and again, your job is to get them ready to play in the big leagues. And, and Josh, by the way, it's anywhere in the big leagues. <laughs> your job is to get your players ready to be major league players. You hope it's for your own organization, but it may, there may be trades. And the better player you are, the bigger return you're going to get if you happen to trade this guy. So you, I always told the players, the idea is, you know, hey, look, I know you all want to play in Los Angeles, but the idea is to play in the big leagues. Right. So there are 29 other teams out there, and every time you walk on the field, you don't know which one of those 29 teams is going to like you. Do the good people of an Albuquerque or a Buffalo, which I'm going to get to in a second because your, your Buffalo stories are, are majorly good, but... You know, you, you worked for guys in Albuquerque that I think got it, right? I mean, Pat McKernan and all those guys. I mean, oh, yeah. they're, they're, they want to win for their community. They want Albuquerque to represent blah, blah, blah. But your job is not to put W's on the scoreboard, like you say. Your job is to get players ready to, to, to leave. Josh, I'm going to tell you, uh, 
God rest his soul, Mr. Campanis, who mm-hmm. liked me and got me to Albuquerque fast. One of the first things he told me, I went to winter ball one year out of double A, and we won the Caribbean championship. And the next year we were going to go back, and he said to me, I'm tired of you trying to win. Your job is to get the players better. And next year, if four of your players play in the big leagues, you've done your job whether you win or lose. And so I came back and said, boss, I believe this. I believe you teach people how to win along with developing them. So when they get to the big leagues, they can execute what needs to be executed so they become winning-type players, which is what the Dodgers want. And I'm remembering there was a stretch with the Red Sox where they had at AAA at Pawtucket and down below that, there was a stretch of something like 26 out of 27 years where their minor league organization didn't have a winning record. And people said, yeah, that's okay because at least we're, we're bringing big leaguers up. But to your point, now it's in their DNA that, well, yeah, I mean, losing's okay because that's all we know. Well, you're right. And this is exactly what was my whole point, especially when I became the farm director. You know, hey, look, guys, you know, we're going to teach you how to win. And so now it becomes habit for them. Mm-hmm. And the higher you go down, when you, once you get to the big leagues, and I... And I Believe me, I sent some guys to the big leagues who didn't execute, and I heard it from the major league staff. You know, hey, how come so-and-so can't bunt? Well, he can bunt. Well, he can't bunt up here. You know, and so that's the battle you have. But the point is you can't stop preparing them. And, yes, once in a while you have to leave a guy in a game. You have to leave a pitcher in a game so he can learn to get out of an inning. Mm-hmm. Where now, you know, you, you know, minor leagues are all worried about the ball. He's got 60 pitches. He's only going five innings. Like, hey, look, they got to learn how to get out of trouble because at some time, and you and I have talked about this a lot, for me there's two types of major league players. The ones who've been humbled and the ones who will be humbled. <laughs> and so you have got to understand to deal with that humility because there's going to be times when you're going to get booed, you're going to have a tough time, and if you don't know how to deal with it, you're going to have a tough time playing in the big leagues. So as good as Pat McKernan was running that Albuquerque team, I'm assuming, my guess is the perfect Venn diagram where there's an intersection of, a, of an owner and a staff and the minors that gets it and also lets you do your job is when you were in Buffalo. So you got Bob Rich as an owner. You got guys like Mike Bolani and, and Butchkowski. I mean, these are guys that I knew growing up a yep. little bit in, in Western New York. Legendary baseball people in Western New York let you do your job. And, and you guys won a little bit, too. Well, they wanted to win. Make no mistake about it. Because when I was there, Buffalo was trying to get a major league franchise. So Bob wanted to win. And by the way, we were drawing a million people. And almost got that. And big almost, league yeah. And yeah. so we almost got that big league franchise. So, you know, it was, it was, for me, it was the ultimate place to, to develop a player. We had TV cameras in after a game to interview the players. We had the Buffalo Bills at games. We had the Sabres coming in the locker room and coming to games. It was a major league town with a triple-A team, right. but they treated you like a major league team. We we won a series one year, and Bob Rich doubled everybody's meal money. <laughs> wow. You know, so it was, and, and that's why guys love to play in Buffalo, but and they played good. But we were also drawing 17,000, 18,000 people a night that, that wanted to see good baseball. And that's, for me, you know, that was all part of, in the minor leagues, was developing players that, hey, look, they can handle any t- anything that, that, that comes in the big leagues outside of the fact that the talent's better in the mm-hmm. big leagues, but they can handle all the, all the situations because they at least had to do it in the minor leagues. So for people that don't know, Bob Rich, for a while, that stadium in Orchard Park where the Bills play it was named after the Rich family, yeah. right? 
and he's running Pilot Field as well. He's got he's got that operation going. That's when the Bills were making all those Super Bowls every year, and right. so you know, super popular. The town's kind of on fire. Was that you? If you had to just pick a place that you know, if if I had to say this was the, the best time I had in a minor league town, I don't want to put words in your mouth because I know you were in places like Duluth, which was probably a fun <laughs> summer or whatever. But I, I'm betting it's probably not Lodi. But it, it was Buffalo the the cream of the crop? It was. It really was. Number one, you know. Again, you know, when I was in Albuquerque and I was there a long time as a player and a manager, and Pat McCurdy was one of my closest friends, you know, he had five guys in the office. We had 70 people in the office in Buffalo. I mean, it was run like a big league club. They were involved after the game, before the games. They came in, and, and but they bought into the whole thing. They loved baseball. You know, we had a game one night in Buffalo. It was 37 degrees and misting rain, and we had 16,000 people at the game. And because to them, winter's over. Right, so this right. is a this, this is, is a great. spring day. Right. This is a good day. So they came out and they loved the Bisons. They loved the Bisons. They came in droves. They had a great time. There was entertainment throughout the day at the ballpark. It was really uh, my most fun I've had in the minor leagues. But also probably one of your most most heartbreaking moments I think in your career. You'd have to agree is when you guys were coming back from Denver. You guys almost won the whole damn thing at AAA. Uh, you needed to win, I think it was one out of three, right? Yeah. You guys have won two, and it's a best of five. Uh, you, you'll lose game three, no big deal. Game four is the one that people in Buffalo still talk about. We're coming up on that anniversary, which is why I wanted you to, to weigh in on this. For those that, and I'm sure 99.9% of our audience yeah. doesn't know, yeah, right. but you guys are getting perfect game by Greg Matthews, as I recall. Uh, you're down 9 nothing. You get back to within nine to eight in a very controversial play at the plate. Your fastest guy, Greg Edge, Greg Edge gets thrown out. You probably still think he was safe. Charlie Montoya threw him out. He was the shortstop who's managing the Toronto now. But Charlie was the shortstop in Denver, and it was a ball down the line. And I sent Greg Edge and the relay throw, and uh, the catcher named Joe Kamak blocked the plate. Greg Greg Edge, I swear to this day, he was safe. They called him out, and we lost the game. Nine to nine to eight, but it was goes down as one of the great games. And then the next day, my best pitcher, who was the pitcher of the year in the league, hurt his back warming up, and uh, we ended up we ended up getting knocked around. But it was a, and I'll tell you how good the organization was. Bob Rich chartered a seven forty seven and flew everybody who worked for the Bisons to Denver for Triple A and Triple A for three days. You, you talk about first class. Yeah, no kidding. So. And, again, tying things in with the Rich family, three and a half months later, it's Buffalo versus Denver again in the AFC championship game right. in the NFL, which right. is crazy. Buffalo goes on. That was not wide right. That's when they played the Redskins, I think, if I, if I remember <laughs> right. right. But it, just kind of putting a bow on this, you, you know, you, you are out there. Um, like you say, you're, you're waving in the, the runner because you're, you're not just a manager. You're the third base coach at right. AAA as well. Uh, if I remember right, the guy's name was Scott Potter, the, the umpire. The umpire, that, that right. The call. You're right. Um, did you ever talk to him again? Because he he did not just go away after that. He was uh, a AAA guy and even a big league guy. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. I'm sure I did probably because you know I was uh, I, I don't remember talking to Scott with game. Well, I might have the next day. I guess the sure. question is, yeah. do you hold a grudge? No, heavens no, heavens no. Let me tell you something. You know, 
umpire, I, I, one of the things that I think is missing in today's game is the umpire-manager relationships. Absolutely. You know, it's gone now. You know, I never held a grudge. Never. All, I get kicked out of the game, and the next day it's, it's a fresh start. So everybody knows about you and Tom Hallian because that went viral, as they say. So did you and Tom Hallian, after the whole asking the jackpot thing, it was like morning, Sam, morning, Ralph, the next day. No Absolutely. Deal. I had Tom in the minor leagues. I'd, I'd known him for 30 years. And by the way, I wasn't yelling at Tom. No, you were you know? in a situation. <laughs> That's right. 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 So, you know, and, that, and that's what the people don't understand. They think I was screaming at him. I was not. No. And, and, so, and he knew that, too. He knew that, yeah. too. And so, yeah, and I, you know, I think now today, I, you know, we both of us have signed enough photos, uh, you know, of, <laughs> when we're nose-to-nose going at it on the field. But That's like, like Mookie and Bill Buckner for all those years. That's right. Signed the that's balls exactly, together. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. But, no, I just think it was all part of the game. And, you know, I look back, and I, I don't hold, I don't think anybody's responsible except the players, the players who play the game. Hey, look, they win them, they lose them. And that's, you know, you can make some decisions that don't work sometimes, but, you know, you make some decisions that do work also. So the last one for you, I mentioned Duluth in passing. That's always fascinated me that on your way back to being a major league manager, you come here to the Mets, people probably don't know you spent a couple months in Duluth uh, for a team called the Huskies, it actually had Drew Smiley on it and a couple other pretty yep. good dudes. Yep. What, what was that experience like? Well, I came back from I was in Japan and I had come back from Japan and a friend of mine. All the years I was with the Dodgers in Vero Beach, he owned a restaurant in Vero Beach. His name was Bobby McCarthy, and Bobby owned this team. And it was a college league, and it was called the Northwoods League. And, and he bought this team in Duluth, and they were all college players. We had kids from Harvard and Penn State and all over there. And Drew Smiley was, I think, from Arkansas. And uh, Zach Walters was from you know San Diego. But we had all those guys here on that team, and it was a blast. They wanted to know all it was about professional baseball and yet wanted to be coached at the same time. Good memories. Thank you, buddy. You bet. Many thanks to the great Terry Collins, the pride of Midland, Michigan, now living down near the Met Spring Training home in Port St. Lucie, playing a crap ton of golf, some of it decently. So Terry, once he made it past the minors and to the big leagues and back from Japan and Duluth, he got to manage the best ever Mets third baseman, David Wright. And our final segment on this edition of Mets in the Morning, we're checking out the best ever Mets third baseman. Since we aren't allowed to talk about the current third base situation, which actually does look pretty good now, it's either going to be the veteran imported from Arizona slash Milwaukee, or maybe they end up signing that all-star former Cub and Giant. But as for third baseman of days gone by, we'll tackle it after this. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Third base, to me, is a really interesting position, period. Uh, First of all, you have to be a bit of a kamikaze 
Grady Hatton once said, all you need to play third base is a big arm and a strong chest. Because you are going to get beaten up over there at least a couple times a game, especially if there's a lefty on the mound. You got 105 exit velo coming at you, and you have to be okay with that. So that's the other thing I would add to the soup. You have to be one of those kids who liked jumping off the top of swing sets growing up to play third base, the hot corner, right? And if you've ever wondered where that description started, the hot corner, it said that a Cincinnati sports writer coined that phrase watching the Reds third baseman Hick Carpenter. Hundred years ago, he wrote, Old Hick was on the hot corner all afternoon, and it's a wonder he wasn't murdered. Yeah, that's what I mean about third base. It's a position that is woefully underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. 13 third basemen are in there, as opposed to 26 shortstops, 26 right fielders, 26 center fielders. And for a while, it really looked like David Wright would be able to get there. If you could have paused his career at around age 26, taking a little snapshot you'd have said this guy is on his way to cooperstown but the beating against the giants uh, the injuries that followed especially to his back and started slipping away from david and the mets david's a mets hall of famer for sure will someday hopefully soon have his number five retired and i always like that by the way five is a scoring shorthand for third baseman david war number five but now he'll forever be in that hall of really good instead of the actual hall of fame the Hall of Really Good is guys like Ron Darling, Keith Hernandez, Oral Hershiser, Kirk Gibson. That's where David Wright is going to end up. So uh, we agree David Wright is the Mets' third base gold standard. His 07 and 08 seasons, best ever by a Mets corner infielder with wins above replacement values of 8.3 and 6.9. I'm looking at David's 07. He was 24 years old. All-star, gold glove, silver slugger, missed only two games all year. 42 doubles, 30 homers, 107 batted in, 94 walks. He hit 324. His OBP was close to 420. Oh, and he stole 34. 34 stolen bases from your third baseman. But once the injury started mounting, third base was kind of a dry well for the Mets for a while. The best Wilmer Flores ever gave you there was a 0.6 wins above replacement. Todd Frazier was a two and a half. Uh, he had a 1.7, a different year. Jonathan VR was a 1.7 last year at a bargain price, so credit for that. Ty Wigginton was the Mets third baseman before David Wright arrived. Robin Ventura, of course, was really solid for three years before him. A lot of other Mets third basemen were guys that played all over the field. Edgardo Alfonso, Jeff Kent, Bobby Bonilla, Howard Johnson, of course. Hojo, in 1989, was close to a seven war. He had 36 homers, 41 steals, more than 100 runs batted in. Two years later, he would lead the National League in both home runs and RBIs and had another 30 stolen base season. Didn't have the OBP of David, and he struck out a little more, didn't play the kind of defense David did, but we absolutely need to mention Howard Johnson at third base as well. We lionized Ray Knight, but statistically, in 86, he was a 2.4 wins above replacement, a full run behind Wally Backman and Mookie Wilson. We go to Hubie Brooks, Lenny Randall as we walk backwards through Mets history at third. Wayne Garrett, of course, had the terrific 73 season, helping the Mets win a pennant. But remember, third base was a position the Mets were always needing to fill back in the 60s and early 70s. It's why they traded Amos Otis to the Royals for Joe Foy. It's why they traded Nolan Ryan to the Angels for Jim Fergosi a couple years after that. That's a whole other podcast for another time. I hear music. I guess that means we're done. 
done talking third base and uh, done with the pod. So let's meet the house band that's made such beautiful music throughout. On keyboards, that was Cleon Jones. Slapping the bass, Scott Hairston. The horn section, Barry Foote. And that downbeat on the drums provided by Don Cardwell. This is Josh Lewin. We'll have more for you coming up next week. Hopefully, we'll start some interviews with the coaches that are being added, if indeed they are official by then. We think they may be. Take it easy. Please stay safe. Be good to each other. Let's go Mets. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.